Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. It's a real joy to be able to introduce Umpo Tutu Fan Firth this morning. Uh, Umpo is a South African pastor, author, artist and activist. She's the daughter of Archbishop Desmond and Leah Tutu and the founding director of the Desmond and Leah Tutu Legacy Foundation, which I hope we'll be hearing more about later on. She's known throughout the world for her advocacy work in issues including forgiveness, the safety and well-being of girls and of same-sex rights. Furthermore, she is a mother and a grandmother, which uh, she wanted me to uh, especially celebrate this morning. And as a fellow grandma, I'm with you on that one. Um, so welcome. Uh, lovely to have you here and looking forward to talking about your new book, Forgiveness and Reparation, The Healing Journey. But first of all, I, I think my first question really is um, this wonderful book which just sort of arrived and you can see all the post-it notes which shows how much I've been engaging with it arrived as it felt like a gift at the right time to me so I wonder if you can tell us a bit to start with about how you came to write it oh um good morning uh, good afternoon good evening everyone depending where and when in the world you are and um hi Catherine thank you so much um it has been an ongoing conversation that I've been having with a friend in COVID time. I know that over the past year, there has been so much that has happened um, with respect to um, facing into our various histories, facing into racial history, facing into history of colonialism and oppression and injustice. And I think also the conversation in South Africa about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was um, deservedly and rightly much lauded, um, but is really coming up for a different kind of examination in the South African context as South Africans say, okay, um, we got a whole lot of truth. We're not quite sure how far we got with the reconciliation thing. And we never, we got forgiveness, but we never really talked about reparations and how does that all fit together and how do we become the society that we dreamt of and that we envisioned when we um, were engaging in the anti-apartheid struggle and where are the places that we have gone off the rails and, and how do we come back um, to that um, shining hope that so characterized the, um, the early years of the post-apartheid era. Yes, shining hope, definitely. And I think from the perspective of being outside of South Africa watching, it truly was extraordinary that I think many of us couldn't believe that the a catastrophe and, and bloodshed on, on a phenomenal scale could ever be avoided, given the history and the situation. So, so yes, I, I, but I think 
good to come back and, and look at, okay, so, so were we deluded in that hope or is that there's still, still work to be done? And I think this is what your book so beautifully addresses. So you were invited to write this. It's, it's part of the um, My Theology series. So presumably a, a commissioning editor got in touch and said, will you write this book? Yes. That, so the conversations had been ongoing, but um, the impetus to write was certainly um, thanks to a commissioning editor um, who said, will you write this? And when I sat down to write, I literally prayed my way in. Um, oh, that's to, so interesting. To, to, yeah. to what mm -hmm. I was writing. And I often, you know, write, my, my voice is um, very often that of poem prayers. And so that, that, that makes where a I lot started. of sense. And then I thought, okay, well, now I have to make this into something that looks more like a theological treatise. Um, <laughs> and how am I going to, you know, sort of how am I going to shape what I have into, into that thing? And then I thought, why? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I, it, there is something quite, quite daunting about the word theology. And please, please make a theological statement. It sort of kind of triggers, oh, now I've got to go into academic mode and footnote it and, and almost sort of write at arm's length uh, in the passive voice. It could be argued that, or this book proposes the following, which, you know, that's that if, if what we are is people who pray, people who talk, people who preach, that's not the register that we naturally do our theology in, is it? So I love the way you say you prayed your way into it. That really resonates with with me. Yes. Yeah, it didn't take me very much to quell the impulse to um, <laughs> academic theology, theological <laughs> writing. wasn't ever the strongest of my suits anyway. And I I remember also thinking about coming back. I spent um, a year in Grahamstown while I was a seminarian as, uh, at the College of the Transfiguration, which is the Anglican seminary in, in Grahamstown in South Africa. I'm, I'm an Episcopal priest, not an Anglican priest. Um, minor difference, but... Um, but I joined the Mother's Union in South Africa, which is a very, the, the Mother's Union is, is um, in black churches in the townships is, is really the backbone of the congregation. Yeah. And so we would meet each week uh, on a Thursday. And part of the meeting was women, you know, one of the mothers would be invited to, um, to choose a piece of scripture. Uh, any piece of scripture, and then to to talk, um, to to really to preach from that piece of scripture, and the theologizing that I heard from these women, um, some certainly were well educated, affluent women, um, but some were very poorly or minimally educated. Um, and their, the really the extent of their education was they could read enough to read the Bible for themselves. And, and then it was just 
what does this what does this word have to say to me and how do I have to live my life as a consequence of what is in this book? Mm -hmm. And that kind of theology that was, you know, like right where the, the rubber meets the road, I thought, you know, this is, this is um, what I was speaking to. It was very mm -hmm. much rubber meets the roads theology it, it didn't live somewhere in their heads it wasn't an intellectual idea to which they gave their assent it was this demands of me that i live my life in this way and this is where i derive comfort and this is where i am challenged and i loved that and so coming to this coming to this book felt like you know what I'm I'm going to write it the way I feel it. <laughs> That's yeah, and that absolutely comes across. And I think it's it's theology in the sense of going back to the roots of of the word. It's God talk. That's mm -hmm. what theology is. And there is no one single way in which we have to do it. Mm -hmm. We bring our whole selves to the task of of our God talk. And it might be informal God talk in, in, just amongst friends, or it might be God talk that's got a bigger audience because it's it's up on YouTube and, and you, you've got thousands and thousands of people across the world listening in on your God talk, or it can be in the published form. And I'm really glad that, that you battered away that, oh, no, no, I have to <laughs> become a theologian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if if you could just for those who haven't had the opportunity yet to read your book, just read us an extract because it seems to me this is a kind of spoken word theology. It's on the page, but but I I read it as though I were hearing you read it. Um, so I wonder maybe if you just start with the beginning because I think this this highlights for me the the many different approaches and voices that are kind of woven into this this book it's not all all just in the same register throughout there's there's poetry there's bits of testimony there's scriptural exposition um but it's it, all forming part of the whole so if, perhaps if you could just read us your opening section that would be great so it begins restitution the return of something lost or stolen to its proper owner giving back what was taken Retribution, punishment inflicted on someone as vengeance for a wrong or criminal act. Reparation, the action of making amends for a wrong one has done, healing the breach. Repair begins with a posture. Imagine a liturgical dancer. What shape would his body form to connote humility? Head bowed shoulders slumped, hands achingly empty. What is the gesture that admits, I did this thing that hurt your heart? Where does the body bend or twist to say, I'm sorry? And what folds or stretches to plead, forgive me? Imagine a dance where the movements cascade hard and fast, unable to contain their own urgency or stutter, tentative and slow, so unsure, would there be music, the slow, low moan of anguish, or maybe 
just the percussion of feet on the floor and the hush and hiss of breath. Imagine a liturgical dancer with a needle and a golden thread reaching out to repair the ragged edges of peoples and generations and years of hurt. Thank you. Where did that come from, that image of the liturgical dancer? Can you, it's sometimes quite hard as writers to, to trace the, uh, an image back to, to its origins, but I wonder if there was a moment when that dancer appeared in your head. I I actually saw a dancer, and a liturgical dancer. I can't remember. It was a conference that I had attended, and um, it was actually an Asian-American man who was dancing the Magnificat. Oh. And I had never seen seen a dancer who could bring the words to life. I don't even remember the gesture that he made for that line, and holy is his name, but the gesture absolutely captured holiness. It was that, it was that, the way that person's body moved was the thing that came to mind as a way of prayer that was just yeah yes and it's i think the the crucial thing probably is that it's embodied prayer isn't it not prayer as a a mental private exercise sitting still which is one one mode of of prayer but but sometimes when the themes are this big and relate so directly to bodies and, and what's done to bodies by other bodies. This feels right to me, uh, as though the image of dance and a body performing, rather than just someone saying words or writing words on a page, this feel, just feels to be in the right sort of appropriate area for the discussion that, that you then unfold in the book. It's not an intellectual exercise of, you know, balance sheets of who did what and how they need to pay it back. That doesn't feel that doesn't feel right. It might involve some of that. But in order to set out your store, really, in the book, I think that's that's a very powerful way of doing it. It, it invites people into the the thought world and, and the, the feelings and, and, and the bodiliness of it all. I think, and I particularly found the um, the image you close with. Imagine a liturgical dancer with a needle and a golden thread reaching out to repair the ragged edges of peoples and generations and years of hurt. The enormity of, of the task of forgiveness and reparation um, that you capture there, but also that, that same shining hope that, that, that we we saw so blazing that all those years ago at the, at the dismantling of apartheid. I can't remember now um, that that uh, Japanese pottery form. Oh, I know. Where, yes, I know what you the, mean. Where the where what is broken is repaired with gold. 
Yes. And and then the the repaired vessel is so much stronger than mm -hmm. the original. Um, that was part of what, you know, part of the image that, that yes. came into my mind um, with that golden thread that, you know, it's not that the injuries haven't happened and it's mm -hmm. not that we um, erase the facts of them, um, but maybe it is the, you know, it is the fact of them that makes us who we are and it is the, the fact that we have healed a hurt that makes our coming back together both stronger and more beautiful. And mm. I think also that it, it was important to me to, to highlight the embodiedness mm -hmm. um, you know, as a, as a as a Christian theologian, that you know our theology is an embodied theology. It's yes. not kind of, you know, our bodies are incidental to our faith. It it was the word becoming flesh. Yes. It wasn't flesh becoming word. That mm. was that was the thing that is so. Um, so central to our faith, it, it was indeed that there is something important about our fleshliness. There is something crucial, central, essential about the fact of our embodiedness um, yes. that is also a place of healing. And we know um, that, that trauma lodges itself in our bodies, that when we are hurt or traumatized, sometimes what, you know, what people call getting triggered, what, what, mm -hmm. um, what triggers us is, uh, is a sense, sensory experience. It's not necessarily just a word or somebody saying something. It is we see something, we smell something, we taste something that reminds us, and it, you know, it throws us back into um, into that trauma experience, and that you know, and and so healing trauma needs also to be an embodied experience. Yes, yes, I think I think that's that's true, and I think for for me, where, where, at the times when I've been puzzled by writers laying such emphasis on on the bodilyness of, of of their theology if if i find i'm puzzled by that I, to me that's a reflection on the fact that my body my my own body has been so privileged that i haven't felt in bodily danger very often so um it shines a light on on privilege as well. If you, if you have the luxury of viewing faith simply as an intellectual or emotional enterprise, mm -hmm. that that tells us something, and it 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 tells us maybe that we need to be at the foot of the cross, looking mm -hmm. at, at the embodied what it looks like to be embodied mm -hmm. to to love, and a kind of love that can't be beaten and tortured out of 
out of that body. So that's been such a challenge to me, really. Um, and I think for many of us, the experience of living through the pandemic has brought us up against the the knowledge that we are very small and very finite and not in control of our fate, um, which felt, I think, for, for those of us who were used to going about freely and doing what, what, what we choose, uh, just rubbed our noses in that, really. And also, um, not only the, the freedom of going where we want to go, um, but the freedom of hugging who we want to hug. Yes. Um, and the, you know, kind of, I, I, I remember the first time after the, the shops opened, going out mm -hmm. to go and buy a carton of milk or something, and noticing my anxiety of, you know, oh, I'm, I'm outside and I'm in a place where there are a lot of people around yes. and you know, are they going to touch me, breathe on me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that the, the people's bodies are a sort of site of, of potential danger for everybody suddenly. Yeah. Not um, so I suppose that previously my only sense, acute sense of of in, being embodied was as a much younger woman. This is no longer quite such an issue. Walking past building sites, for example, suddenly feeling very visible and potentially someone was going to shout, cheer up, love, it might never happen, or, or some mm -hmm. other maybe mm -hmm. crass sexual comment. But, but you know, to, be, to feel in jeopardy and in, in, potentially in danger, in our bodies, um, and I think COVID has brought that back. That you sit on a train thinking, "Well, I haven't got a mask on," <laughs> but also that great yearning at the same time for physical closeness. Mm. And I remember being out for a walk just locally when all that was all we were allowed to do. And I suddenly met a colleague who I hadn't seen for months, and and we just stood as if on opposite banks of a river just waving our arms helplessly, <laughs> shouting hug, because that was all that yeah. we could do. And I, I think healing comes through that healing touch, doesn't it? But I just to come back to the idea of the golden mending, I think there's a real temptation and an instinct in in us to, to go for the invisible mending option, you know, which is one mm. thing that, that perhaps tailors or dry cleaners mm. might offer. You ripped your favourite trousers <laughs> you know we can we offer invisible mending and this is sort of no that that would deny that anything bad had ever happened if you if it were possible invisibly to to mend these big traumas and injustices so we, it needs to be a golden thread I think that's why that felt so important in that image that you kind of launch your book with yeah Oh, I mean, as uh, you know, again, even in that in that Christian story and Jesus' post-resurrection experiences, uh, you know, you would think uh, Jesus, who could heal a leper and make a blind person see and a lame person walk, could you know, kind of plastic surgery out all of those. Let's get rid of yeah, let's get rid of those yeah. wounds and you know, snip yeah. snap, they're done. Um, but the fact of them. Here you can put your your finger in in my palm. Here you can 
feel the wound in my side. This, mm -hmm. you know, it is me. You, you know yeah. that it is me because this indeed mm -hmm. has happened. It's not, uh, and so that, that kind of, we don't want to, it's not wiping the slate clean that that yes. is what mm. needs to be done. Mm. It is being able to place that pain in its correct place in our story. That leads us rather beautifully onto the the other thing. I think probably the the great aha moment for me. Um, in thinking about forgiveness through what you've you've brought to us in your book, is the what I would call the kind of lost in translation element of the mm. truth and reconciliation process, where the, the the gap between what the English "I am sorry, forgive me" is understood to mean, and what, as you say, the old ones heard a different word. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, so, um, in in English, um, one says "I'm sorry" and "forgive me," and and then the person opposite will either accept the apology and grant the forgiveness or not. But then you have that forgiveness, and you're free to go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, got it great, now I can go on about my business, life is good. In the hearings in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the speakers um, heard a simultaneous translation. And in simultaneous translation, what you hear, and in all of the uh, Nguni languages, it tends towards much the same. So in Kasa, you you hear which means literally, I ask for peace. Um, and I ask for peace is relational. Yes. Um, I ask for peace for myself. Yes. Um, I ask for peace between us. Mm. And I ask for you to have peace as well. So in order for me to have peace, you also have to have peace. And so when they, when the response is, yes, I, you know, I give you peace. I give you my peace. It's, I understand that to mean that, okay, I am opening the space for us to work together to build something different or better than, than what we had previously um so no you're not free to go you're free to stay and work that's the crucial difference i think and and it made sense to me of the times when when i felt nonplussed by the theory that i was forgiven yet there still felt to me that that there was a a girl there I didn't feel forgiven because it 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 was almost like that's what you say, the, the wiping the slate clean. You think, well, wh what does that mean? Where does that leave me? Other than with the possibility of doing it again and then having to come back, sorry, my slate, could you just clean it again? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, that, that is, a, to my mind, a game changer, understanding 
that the indi individual slate cleaning is not the business of the true business of, of forgiveness. Um, certainly, and I think there's a tendency again, and I think this probably comes from privilege to think in terms of I, I'll need to forgive that person because they forgot my birthday mm. or they they cheated on me or whatever it might be. Mm. Just very small relational things, not related to bigger structures. And I think that one of the images which has haunted me for years came from a Francis Spufford's book about called Un Unapologetic, where he just mentions in passing about John Newton on board his slave trader, already converted, but the work of forgiveness not having run through everything that he did. So he was asking for forgiveness. And then Francis Spufford says, presumably for things like not having a swear box nailed to the mast of his slaver. So I think it's that that sense that we're looking at these tiny things and unable to stand back and see that the, the sins that need forgiving and healing are at the level of institutions and nations. And I think that I ask for peace and, and I offer peace. I invite you in to help the, within this work of repairing. That, that to me, as I say, is, is the game changer really. I think it 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 um, also kind of holds with this um, the the vertical image, the me God image. Mm -hmm. So you know, I can ask God for forgiveness. God forgives me, and I'm done. Um, yes. I you know I I I actually have no further work to do. Mm -hmm. um, where the reality is. I ask God for forgiveness, but I also ask my community for forgiveness. I, you know, that that's you know, uh -huh. that's the 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 cruciform is yes. is that my my faith isn't just about me and God, um, but yes. but right relationship is right relationship with God because I'm in right relationship with my neighbor and right relationship with my neighbor because I'm in right relationship with yes. God. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.